0: you're listening to the co-main event podcast and now your hosts ben folks and chad dundas that's
1: right you're listening to another episode of the co-main event mixed martial arts podcast i'm chad dundas that's ben folks we're both senior writers in mma for the athletic we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts a day late this week, owing to uh, your travel schedule. That's right. And then uh, parental duties. And then, I mean, let's get to the headline here Hockey playoff game last night. How did it go?
0: We lost because we are pretty much the worst team in the league, but still made the playoffs. Everybody made the playoffs. Oh,
1: Jesus Christ.
0: I'm in two leagues, as I think you know.
1: This would be like the Millennial Participation Trophy League. Everybody makes the playoffs?
0: Well, there's just only six teams in the league. So it'd be kind of a weak playoff if not everybody made the playoffs. But we're a very old team. I bring the average age down a lot by being a sprightly young man of 40. And, um, you know, not a whole lot of get up and go in the lineup. So not a big surprise that we went out there. We lost. But the other team I'm on, we're still alive in the playoffs. In fact, we did so well in the regular season, we have a bye through the first round of the playoffs, which historically has been pretty terrible for us. Yeah, isn't, uh, isn't that when Bread Truck got his injury last year? He, I think, was injured in the last game of the season last year. Uh, but he's back this year. And I, I just we've got to find some way to shake off the rust after the bye week. Just talk of getting the, renting the ice, getting out there for a practice, mm-hmm. something like that. Otherwise, you come off that bye week and you're just not sharp anymore. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Maybe
1: your hockey team, you should all rent rooms at a hotel. You guys go there and stay. You okay. simulate a pregame situation, then you go out for a friendly skate just to make sure you keep your edge.
0: Yeah, that sounds like something we're absolutely going to do.
1: You were out there in Portland. I was for uh, Chael and Submission Underground.
0: Yeah. I brought you some uh, some gummy treats. Oh, nice. Yeah.
1: The uh, kind of gummy treats that are going to make me feel real relaxed before my bubble bath.
0: I just think that maybe the next time we're going to do one of these movie clubs, especially maybe if it's a movie that you don't feel super into, you uh, maybe eat a gummy or two. Okay. And just see how it goes.
1: I would think that would be a terrible idea before tomorrow's movie club about Parasite. Because I feel like we're going to need to have our wits about us.
0: I'm not saying you want to do the actual movie club podcast under the influence of the gummies. I'm saying maybe you want to enjoy the movie that way. Although Parasite might freak you out a little bit if yeah. you enjoy I'll tell you what. I, my uh, great Saturday night in Portland, I uh, walked around the corner to one of those their dispensaries. where They sell all manner of items. Uh, bought a couple of peanut butter cups. Ate the peanut butter cups and then went back to my hotel and watched the Tyson Fury, oh. Deontay Wilder, uh, boxing pay-per-view on my laptop. Had a great time. Absolutely great time. They got
1: peanut butter cups,
0: huh? See, now I got your interest. Now you got my
1: attention. How was the submission underground? Was How'd that go?
0: It was a lot of fun to go see. I will have a more in-depth story on that coming to The Athletic this week. But, uh... I'm really glad I went. It was kind of a fun event to go to, like especially a different event to go to. It's a different kind of thing when you go to a, something like this where you're like, oh, everybody can just kind of be friendly, and except for Mike Perry, and nobody's going to get punched in the face. Nobody's going to the hospital afterwards. So it just has a real lighthearted, fun mood to it. And it's on a Sunday afternoon. Everybody can just kind of enjoy them. So And it's such a different feeling after getting used to going to a bunch of, you know, human cockfighting events.
1: Tell the kids at home how Mike Perry absolutely ice-grilled you when you tried to get
0: an interview with him. It was, I don't know if he... I would say he ice-grilled me, but just, you know, when I tried to... I tried a couple times to try to, like, talk to Mike Perry, and it seemed like to me, like, maybe Mike Perry thought, hey, when you come up, come to do the Submission Underground thing, part of the deal is you don't have to do this shit. You don't have to do any media. Yeah. But ever, talk to a whole bunch of other people who... We're all having a great time. So wait, Mike parents just like, no? Uh, it, just, it was like, you know, hey, we're kind of trying to talk and like maybe we'll talk. Like one of those things where people are always telling you like, we're going to do it later. Okay. Like, yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll do something later. Stuff like that. But, uh, you know, my man Jake Shields was up in the house. Nate Corey's over there running commentary. It's a real – there's also some reunion stuff going on. Yeah, it sounds
1: like a family reunion out there. Team Quest family reunion.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm looking forward to your coverage. Have you guys got your copy of The Blaze yet? If not, you better get on it. It's my new novel. It's a mystery and a thriller. I've been hearing from a lot of the little comaniacs out there that they think it's pretty good. Run out and grab The Blaze today on whatever format you like to do your reading. Remember, if you have read it, or you do read it, and you enjoy it, please go leave me a five-star review over at Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you like. Those reviews do help the book. So do me a favor. Buy, read, rate, and review The Blaze wherever is best for you. Thanks. Don't forget, you can also run out and get yourself one of those CME logo t-shirts over at CottonBureau.com or you can get yourself a Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirt. We got Dundasso t-shirts for sale over there. They're always available on demand all the time whenever you want them, over at CottonBureau.com. Just go over to CottonBureau.com today and get yourself some CME merchandise. We got music this week from our guy, Dion Rodriguez, a music producer from Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear from him on the podcast, you can check out more over at SoundClouds.com slash DBeats7. And again, that's
0: the word beats with a Z. Beat. z. Everybody knows that by now.
1: Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Dan Hooker edged Paul Felder in a close, close fight in the main event of UFC Auckland over the weekend. In the immediate aftermath, Felder said he might retire and Hooker said he wants either Justin Gaethje or Dustin Poirier. But will either of those things actually happen? And in round number two, they're really going to do it. Henry Cejudo against old back-to-back losses 3-5 and five since 2015. Jose Aldo for the men's bantamweight title. Essentially, we can't even see the damn looking glass in our rearview mirror at this point. And in round number three, this weekend, the UFC's men's flyweight division is poised to crown its third ever champion. Can anybody make the 120 25 pound class relevant all that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff but first like we always do about this time let's do a little bit of listener mail listener mail you know people are asking on the internet sending in listener mail comments to ask us if master tweet theater is dead and buried oh no but i don't think it is no, it's just a matter of getting Sir Nigel Longstock to come in here for free, like he does, taking yeah. time out of his schedule, his
0: busy, busy schedule. Sit
1: down with us, do a little master tweet theater. Just get it gets tougher and tougher as people get older. They start to take on more responsibilities. Yeah, we yeah. got to find a place for him here in the dedicated podcast. They begin space. huffing
0: more paint, uh, better paint, you know, as they move up in the world. But yeah, we—I'm sure we can figure something out. All right, first piece of listener
1: mail this week comes to us from Brian Mills, who writes, Gentlemen, my wife and I are having an argument, and we need you two to settle it. Oh, good. Does Brad Riddell's look more like a big-ass T.J. Dillashaw's or a little-ass Ryan Bader's? While we're at it, what did you think about his fight with Anton (laughs) Chigurh? Did you see this? Brad Riddell, hometown hero, over there at uh, this UFC Fight Night 168 down there in Auckland, headlined by Paul Felder versus... uh, Dan Hooker, Brad Riddell gets a big win over Magomed
0: Mustafayev, split decision. But did you watch this fight? This is a good ass fight. I went back and watched it afterwards when I heard people talking about it. For me, I I can't even see how Brad Riddell's could look like a little Ryan Bader's. I see no, I, big yeah. T.J. Dillashaw's. Maybe a little
1: big T.J. Dillashaw's. I feel the same. You, I looked at some pictures in in uh, doing some prep work. Yeah, to answer this question. But, uh, yeah, I don't see the Ryan Bader's. No. Maybe it's the facial hair. There are some pictures of him where he has the like kind of a similar beard to Ryan Bader's. Okay. But uh, I'm just not seeing it. Yeah. On the other hand, Magomed Mustafayev, he does look like Anton Shagur. I saw people joking about it on Twitter before they had the fight. And then when I saw him, I was like, oh, damn, he does look like that.
0: Anybody, though, with that haircut is 85% of the way there. Like oh, at that point you just have to not fuck up the resemblance. But you got dark hair, and you do that weird psychopathic pageboy kind of haircut, and that
1: is the Dagestani haircut. It kind right? of is. Like
0: you, you watch very much the same way that that like Abe Lincoln beard is the Dagestani beard. If you watch one of these
1: cards from Russia, which are happening twenty four hours a day, seven it, days a week, yes. from all I can tell. 85% of the dudes from Dagestan have that haircut. Yeah. In fact, Gurubaka Hitman tweeted one. Do you see this fight? He tweeted out like last week, and then I retweeted it, and it looked like two different versions of the same <laughs> dude yes, absolutely yes. wrecking each other out there. <laughs> I mean, that's what you get into in those Russian MMA promotions. Yeah. A bunch of interchangeable dudes with the same haircut and the
0: same beard just knocking the slobber out of each other. Meanwhile, they're over there watching this event on ESPN Plus going, is that big TJ Delicious?" There's our
1: little Ryan Bader's. But I digress. Brad Riddell, Ben, I believe he's a city kickboxing product, right? From, I think so. Uh, yeah. From down there in uh, Auckland, he this is his second UFC fight, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and they both have been incredibly entertaining. His first one, remember, he fought Jamie Malarkey. Uh, at the UFC 243 Whitaker versus Adesanya card.
0: You might recall I was at that one.
1: Which was also a hell of a fight. Yeah. And then he comes out and has the same deal with Magomed Mustafaev, improves his overall record to 8-1. and one. Seems to me, though, like Brad Quake Riddell.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that.
1: I'm not totally into the nickname, but know. he seems like he's going to be one of these guys that, uh, when the octagon heads to the Southern Hemisphere, he's going to be on your main card.
0: Yeah, but then... Do you want to be one of those guys, right? Like, because we've talked before about how the UFC has pigeonholed certain people like, you know, there'll be like a Swedish fighter or like a guy from Finland or like certain or sometimes the way Bellator does with now that it's trying to break into the UK and Ireland and stuff where they just think of these guys as, okay, we'll call you when we're in the neighborhood. But other than that. We'll kind of forget your number. I don't know if yeah. you want that. You got you to gotta break out of that mold.
1: I mean, it's not completely ideal, but as we're going to talk about probably more in round number one, Brad Riddell's fighting at 155 pounds here where there's a ceiling right now for how high you can fly. So it's better to be a regional star right now than to get just totally lost in the wash because we'll talk about this more when we talk about uh, the upcoming uh, prospects for Dan Hooker and Paul Felder, like it's, it's kind of a closed scene up there right now at the lightweight title picture.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that that's right. And also, Rodell's only two
1: fights into his UFC career. Like he's got, he probably has a half dozen fights where even if he wins them all, he would, he would need that many to like get into title contention.
0: Yeah, that's true. The, you mentioned his fight against Jamie Malarkey at the Whitaker Adesanya card in Melbourne back in October. The thing I remember about that one is how, you know, sometimes you get out there for a fight and it becomes quickly apparent. One of these guys has a major advantage. Like he's just better hand speed, sharper puncher, stuff like that. But the other guy is tough as hell. And you go, okay, I see a a beating taking shape here. And that was one like, you were amazed with Jamie Malarkey's toughness and resilience and being able to take the beating. But it was also one of those fights where it really quickly settled into a pattern where you're like, okay, this is... uh. This is going to go badly for one guy, and yeah. it's going to go badly for a while.
1: Yeah. Well, and then this matchup against Magomed Mustafaev. Mustafaev is one of these guys who he'd lost to Kevin Lee in 2016, but that was basically his only loss since the very, very beginning of his career, all the way back in 2011. He'd had a lot of fights in Russia. He'd had a lot of fights, you know, against lesser competition, but he'd been in the UFC since 2015, and it was kind of like, for the most part, all systems go, aside from getting uh, choked out by by Kevin Lee in in uh, on the undercard of the Mustafi Uriah Hall rematch. Uh, but like he seemed like he was one of these guys who was like the super talented lightweight who again just gets kind of lost in the mix. We forget about him because there's so much competition there. There's so many events. There's so many people. So I was actually kind of surprised. Uh, Riddell ends up beating him by split decision, but early on in this thing, like. Brad Riddell is touching this dude up, and he, and uh, Mustafaev is making a face when he gets hit. Like, he does not like it. Like he'd been hit by the quake? I was just, yes, hit by the quake. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I was surprised a little bit. I have to say, maybe I was underestimating uh, the Brad Riddells here, but he did. He showed out, man. Got, the, got another win in front of the hometown peeps.
0: Now we just got to work on that nickname. Next question this
1: week comes to us from Jurgen Klopp.
0: Okay, again, good to hear from Jurgen Klopp again.
1: He writes, Just read this tweet uh, by Sean Elshadi prior to the main card in Auckland. Angela Hill's last 11 months in the UFC, six fights in three different countries, a 4-2 record. Of those six, four fights were short notice for Hill, plus one was short notice for opponent. Now a three-fight win streak. Average of 56-day turnarounds between fights. my goodness. And then uh, Jurgen Klopp asked, "I love me some Angela Hill, but do we need to save fighters from themselves? Please discourse." Well, it's working out pretty well for Angela Hill. Yeah, it is, and like, and in that division and the way that she fights, women's strawweight, I'm not totally sure that she's like suffering a lot of untoward damage. Yeah. in these fights, especially you know uh, she had a pretty good scrap with uh, Luma Lakbunmi. Nailed, Nailed it, it probably. Uh, but it was one where Angela Hill seemed like she was in control the whole time. She had two TKO stoppages previous to that. I just think that
0: um that decision she lost to Yan Jionan could have gone the other way.
1: Yeah. Uh but I think like Angela Hill has kind of uh found this thing for herself. She's found a thing that I think both works for her in the cage and it's it's starting to bring her some of the notoriety that maybe she has deserved for a while because Angela Hill, a good fighter, and I think very marketable outside the cage. Uh So I'm glad to see her kind of find this thing that that is getting her the attention that I thought that she has deserved in that weight class for a while.
0: Yeah, and to tell you the truth, when I talk to female fighters in the UFC, I never hear anybody saying – you know, they are just working me too hard. Right, yeah. I just, they're, they're asking me to do too many fights in too short a time span. The problem they have is the exact opposite, where especially for the women fighters, they're saying, get me a fight. Why do I have to wait so long in between fights? Like, keep me active and keep me busy. I think most female fighters in the UFC are looking at Angela Hill's activity and being like, how do I get on that list? Right. Like, how do I get a chance to fight that much? Because that's what most of them want. And Angela Hill, Doing a lot of good work for herself, like just by staying ready, being able to take some of these fights, but also, like you said, like finding a way, even in the Reebok era and in the oversaturation era and the ESPN Plus streaming era, Angela Hill has still found a way to connect with just like the regular fans, especially on like the the hardcore fans on Twitter. People, and that's not easy to do when you're fighting on the prelims uh, a whole bunch of times. You really have to. Do all the work yourself. There's not a whole lot of work that the promoter is doing to put you out there in front of people. You have to find a way to connect with them. And she's done that. Yeah. And, I, I mean, I think that that can serve as a model for a lot of other people.
1: Yeah, and I'll be interested to see how far she can run this win streak. It's Like I said, it seems like uh, staying active has helped her. I think it's she seems sharper in the cage. She got out to a fast start in this fight over the weekend. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how many, how many wins she can string together here if she indeed... Uh, carries on with this like fast paced schedule that she sets for herself.
0: She managed to be see, you gave me some shit when I was talking to you from uh Portland when I was texting you because I watched this thing started in the afternoon. Like yeah. and I I watched the first fight, Priscilla Cashwera go out there and knock out Shayna Dobson with one uppercut. Then I watched Angela Hill and then I went walking around the city, went got some lunch, went to Powell's books. Yeah. Uh and then came back in time for to see uh, Carolina Kovalcik catch a beat down. Yeah, uh, and then watch the rest of the card from there. But you were giving me shit for skipping out on the prelims. But it was like, okay, I'm definitely going to stay around for the Angela Hill part of the prelims. Then I'm going to go get my lunch, check out yeah. the bookstore.
1: Uh, also, anytime I'm giving anyone else grief for missing the prelims, sort of <laughs> a pot and kettle type situation. Yes, it is. Yes, Although it is. I will be honest with you, I will not argue. With a UFC Auckland time frame. Yeah. This thing, I think, was over by about 8 o'clock here in the One True Time Zone. The only downside is it runs right through bedtime for my children. So, uh, you know, my wife had to put all three of our kids to bed by herself, which is, uh, it's like hacking through the jungle with a machete, just hoping to, to find civilization.
0: It's a downside for her, really. Yeah. More but than you.
1: But to get, to get in and out the door by 8 o'clock.
0: Man, that ain't bad.
1: More of that, if you please. Next question this week comes to us from Andrew Millington, who writes: The stark difference between how Carolina Kowalczyk's corner and Deontay Wilder's corner handled their compromised fighters really hit. Really had me wondering what's wrong with us in the MMA bubble. Does it boil down to the money being so much harder to earn in our sport? Uh, the the amount of tools available to MMA fighters for the purpose of a hail mary comeback. Uh, Spartan mentalities, outside of a few high-profile corner stoppages, Diaz-Thompson, GSP-Pen-2, Marquardt-Gaslam, why can't we protect our athletes without feeling guilty?
0: Well, it's interesting to note that it's not as if stopping the Deontay Wilder fight went unremarked upon or even was accepted readily by the fighter. He caught the the exact flack you would expect from internet dweebs and not just from internet dweebs from like Deontay Wilder himself talking about how maybe he's going to make some changes in personnel for the next fight. Like, and has said, he said, I told my team all along that if anybody throws the towel in on me, there will be consequences. And he kept saying over and over again, how he wished they hadn't thrown the towel in for him. So, like, that's exactly the kind of stuff we'd expect from MMA fighters. And that's the thing that we'd always heard before. Is Like, well, they're, they don't throw the towel because they don't want to lose that bond with their fighters. They're afraid the fighter will fire them. Basically, go get another coach and the, like a trust will be broken between them. And so that's why they don't do it. And it seems like maybe that is actually what's going to happen here. But I do think there's a a big difference is that... In MMA, almost all the time, if you throw that towel in, you are dooming the guy to go home with half his paycheck. Yeah. And that's a very big deal to yeah. them, whereas not really the case here. I mean, both of these guys, I believe, were making, what, a guaranteed like $28 million, yes. something around there, plus points on the pay-per-view, which are going to be pretty big. So it's not like the money is the big issue there. What was interesting to me about the stuff Deontay Wilder said after that fight was not like that he was mad that they threw in the towel because i wanted him to give me every chance to win i thought maybe i was going to i was on the verge of a comeback he didn't say anything like that he said they should have let me go out on my shield like i'm a warrior and i want to go out on my shield and it's like that is very telling because that's not you saying like they gave up on me too soon it sounds like you're saying you were going to lose that fight you just wanted to get knocked all the way out which why especially like big-ass heavyweights, big-ass Tyson Fury throwing those bombs at your head when you were less and less capable of protecting yourself, he could do serious lifelong damage to you with one clean punch. Like, why do that just so you can say, hey, I was a tough guy and I was right down to the very end? Especially if you feel like you weren't in that fight anymore. That's exactly when they should throw in the towel.
1: Yeah. What about Karolina Kovalkevich, though? She gets absolutely... Lit up for the duration of this fight uh, with Yan Xiao Did I say that right? Did I nail it? Pretty close. Did I do okay?
0: I Did mean. You, you weren't even listening? I heard it, but you were asking the wrong guy if you're looking for an expert. Uh, Chinese name pronunciation. This,
1: this fight is not close. No. It's not competitive. It's 30-26 across the board by the time we get to the decision. Carolina Kovalkiewicz Uh, gets her damn eye socket broken. She, I believe, uh, broke an orbital in this thing really early on in the fight as it turned out. And yet she's going to go out there and slog through all 15 minutes of a fight that she never really has a chance to win except for like a fleeting moment when she appears she might get a heel hook.
0: That's the thing to me is that she was never really in it it was never really a competitive fight and yet why we keep sending her back out there what's the point like you're not you're not going to win that fight and you know if you're the corner that she can't or like she would catch a whole lot of shit if she came back sat down on the stool and was just like you know what not going back out we've seen that we've seen that from fighters before and they do catch a ton of shit i don't want to hear about your groin right now george (laughs) I mean beyond that even like we've heard like people just be like I can't I don't go back out there again and then you know everybody jumps on them but that's why the corner should do it the corner should sit there especially after like round two and be like hey look I'm not sending you back out there yeah. we're, we're gonna call it here because then you take the the blame off of her you take it on your shoulders but nobody's gonna really blame you and that's it everybody's gonna be like that's somebody who actually cares about their fighter yeah to not do it and to not even really seem like you're seriously considering doing it, I wonder like what what do you think you got out of this other than a fighter who now's like headed for surgery and won't be heard from again for a yeah. long time.
1: And it seems like in MMA at least, and I, I realize there's probably a huge percentage of people that would react negatively to it, but I feel like we are starting to turn a corner, at least part of the fan base. You know, we start to look at guys like Duke Rufus who seem like, you know, maybe through hard won experience, maybe through having some scary situations with previous fighters seem like they are starting now to be a little bit more uh, to be humanists a bit more in terms of how they handle their fighters. And like, especially with guys like Anthony Pettis, who he has a long relationship with, uh, Fernando Pratis on The Athletic just wrote a story about this yeah. a couple weeks ago about throwing in the towel. And, like, I feel like there is at least a groundswell of, uh, you know, support for people who are going to look after their fighters in that same way. I just don't know. And, again, I don't really know anything about, like, Carolina Kovalkevich's personality or her corner or, like, what their strategy is there. But it does seem like she took a lot of damage that she didn't need to take in a fight that she wasn't going to win. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Cameron Chapman who writes, did you hear Max Kellerman on the Fury Wilder broadcast say that the UFC heavyweight champ, not Tyson Fury, is the quote, baddest man on the planet because MMA is more like what would happen in an actual fight. And later on in the broadcast, there was much discussion on how just the act of getting up off the canvas was incredibly taxing for these big heavyweight boxers. What the hell is going on here? Is MMA better than boxing? Are we, the shit-eating wild people, allowed to have nice things? Or do all heavyweight fights suck, just UFC ones suck less? Please discourse, because I don't even know what to believe anymore.
0: I didn't hear this comment from Max Kellerman. Did you watch this fight? I did not. No, of course you did. I've seen the highlights. Well, I mean, it was a... I I do not regret a single penny of the money I spent on it. Yeah. It It was... Kind of what you want out of a big-time heavyweight boxing championship fight. It seems like everybody got their money's worth. I will
1: uh, uh, expand and say that I I wrote the instant analysis piece on UFC Auckland for The Athletic. So by the time that was done, I was a little bit spent. Yeah. you got to kind of plow through on deadline for a thing like that. And then uh,
0: I tucked in pretty early. <laughs> well, it – it had all the good spectacle stuff. It's interesting to go and, you know, since I don't watch a ton of boxing events, especially like really watch them live in real time. It's interesting to go from watching the UFC, which is really just well-oiled machine. Boom, boom, boom. We're going right from one thing to the next. Everybody get your Reebok shit on and get out there. And then you watch uh heavyweight boxing thing where right away, first of all, they're going to take fucking forever to get around to the main event. Yeah. Even though they know that that's pretty much the only shit that people care about. And then you finally get around to it uh after like locker room interviews and all the rest of it and Tyson Fury comes out here on a throne being carried on a litter and they re- and you also realize like they maybe misjudged how long this was going to take because that litter is moving very very slowly and uh it's it's losing its value the longer we see him <laughs> just sitting there moving at a snail's pace toward the ring but stuff like that and it, it's just fun to, to kind of sit there and watch through the broadcast and everything. Watch the the fight itself was a good heavyweight fight for what you could expect. And I, I don't know. I mean, to me, whenever we try to compare heavyweight boxers and heavyweight MMA fighters, it, it feels like we're just, we're asking the wrong questions. Because it's like, would would Stipe or Francis Ngannou stand a chance if they go in there in a boxing match with Tyson Fury? No. Probably not. No, they would not. Like, just... A big man who knows that craft really, really well. Yeah. And he is really adept at like using the rules of that sport to his advantage and has figured out a style that works really well within those rules. If you take him into MMA, if you take him into like a street fight or whatever you want to call like a bare knuckle out in the alley, maybe it's a different story. But then they're not doing that. Yeah. So what are we even talking about? We're talking about like Batman versus Superman, basically. <laughs> like we're just making shit up. Yeah. Uh, it It is a little bit like the, uh,
1: like, even sillier than a pound for pound conversation. Who is the baddest man on the planet?
0: It just doesn't, it's not a real thing. Yeah, well, yeah, and it's, it's not like, a real world discussion. <laughs> like, are we having this fight in a situation where, like, maybe one of the guys could pick up a broken bottle? Maybe the baddest man on the planet will be determined by who finds a broken bottle first yeah. and is more adept at edged weapon fighting. Like, yeah. shit like that. I, I don't know. But, I. It is interesting how when you watch one of these fights and you see, like, all the money that is flowing to the fighters in it. And you see, like, the size of their live gate. It's an really impressive live gate. They're they're going to sell a whole lot of pay-per-views. But it's not that much more than what MMA is bringing. It's yeah. not like you can just point and be like, it's more popular and that's why those the boxers make more money than the MMA fighters at the same level. Because, no, they're... There are structural differences that explain like that vast gap because it's not like, what are they going to sell? Maybe 2 million pay-per-views or so around on uh, ESPN Plus, something like that. Be pretty realistic for a fight like this. It's not like you're many, many, many times greater than the best-selling UFC pay-per-views at that point. Right.
1: Next question this week comes to us from uh, deceased former boxer Harry Greb he writes. So I assume you guys being literary types have heard the news of Charles Portis's passing. True Grit is one of my top 5 favorite novels and I think Portis was one of the strongest writers in American history. No one could blend humor into their words like he could. So with all this praise out of the way, I'm imploring you that for the next movie club, you do a half movie, half book club for True Grit as directed by the Coen brothers. Uh, which is as good as it as it is doesn't blow your Cohen Brothers load and will allow you to talk about the life and works of one of the literary greats also true grit the novel absolutely flies i'm a slow reader and finished it in days and let me tell you the dialogue is even better when not constrained for movie length always thanks uh for hearing me out that's uh it's
0: good to hear from the Pittsburgh windmill Barry yeah. greb
1: yeah uh yeah so charles portis passed away which was a uh, a loss for the literary world for sure
0: yeah I was a big fan of Charles Portis. And, you know, when I picked up the True Grit novel, just to look back through it when I heard that news, and it is true, you just can get sucked into that novel right away, and it flies right by. Uh, I'd be into this idea of pairing the True Grit novel with the True Grit Coen Brothers remake. I think also the, the remake... Shows you how uh, one of the great things about the Coen brothers is that they know when to leave something the fuck alone, mm-hmm. but also when to make minor tweaks. Yeah. One of the few instances where I'm like, okay, plot-wise and stuff, the, the tweaks they made to this story, they improved it. And in a lot of other instances, they were like, you know what? Charles Portis knew a damn thing or two. We're just going to take his stuff and put it right in our screenplay.
1: Yeah. No, that, that is one of the things that they excel at is when to be extremely faithful uh, to the previous intellectual property. Let's do this. Let's do tomorrow. We we will record the movie club podcast for *Parasite*. That's right for ten dollar patrons over at Patreon.com/slash/main event. The next one will be listener generated, so I think we should go ahead and run that as scheduled. Maybe for the following one, we do combination book club, movie club, *True Grit*, because that'll give everyone okay,
0: now they have time
1: the the time to read the book, watch the movie. We'll all be on the same page by the time we sit down and record.
0: And the book is quite short and goes very fast. That is true. So we're putting you on notice right now. Get your shit together.
1: That's going to do it this week for uh, listener mail. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us while you're there you can go up and go ahead and sign up for the breakfast of champions newsletter that comes out every friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast stuff always happens news always breaks the newsletter itself is short it's informative we would love to tell you it's funny and if you don't like it it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, Dan Hooker versus Paul Felder turned out to be, I think exactly what the ufc wants when it books these somewhat low profile fight night events overseas in the spark arena at auckland new zealand 10,000 people there on site but at the same time we see a pattern now with these uh you know lower profile fight night events you get a bunch of fights you get some hometown draws but not a lot of stuff that's going to be relevant to the overall Uh, narrative or the landscape of the UFC except for the main event where you get potentially a important contender fight and also a physical matchup that is going to be a crowd pleaser and Dan Hooker and Paul Felder definitely did that a five round split decision win for Dan Hooker as close as you can get these two guys end up winning fight of the night honors Uh, a win that should I think by all rights Launch Dan Hooker sort of into the hundred and fifty five pound elite obviously when it's over, Paul Felder hinted at retirement said he might retire then his camp kind of kind of walked it back in the days following that that we don't think Paul Felder is really going to call it quits Let's start I guess with uh the nature of this card and what the uh what the main event did because I feel like when you're the uFC matchmakers you're putting together these cards this is exactly what you want from your your headline attraction
0: yeah that's as best as you can hope for is it's a really good fight really close fight and everybody comes away from it afterwards going like okay that was worth me sitting around for and it feels by the end it does feel like a main event yeah which is one of the things that people kind of identified as a weakness in this one um first of all what do you think of the decision
1: i didn't have a problem with it i is a very very close fight and i thought that uh you know, the way that the fight played out, it looked early on like Dan Hooker was going to kind of have his way. He was he was using his physical tools to his advantage. He was fighting long. He was able to touch Paul Felder with the jab. He had the blistering calf kicks going. And then Paul Felder kind of does, kind of did what Paul Felder does. He pulled himself back into this fight. His cornermen were reminding him of his daughter in between the late rounds. And Paul Felder got back into this thing, closed the distance. And by the time it was over, I thought Felder was coming on, was landing the more significant strikes, but I didn't have a problem with 48-47, and I didn't have a problem with the split decision. I don't think every close fight results in a robbery. I was okay with this one.
0: Yeah, me too. I I could have seen it going either way, especially anytime like in a fight like this where you end up with 48-47 scores across the board, if you acknowledge that that is reasonable, yeah. and I think you have to acknowledge that it's reasonable here, then you're acknowledging that it's a super close fight. And... The thing, too, that made it hard was that it wasn't even one of those five-round decisions where you could really clearly say, okay, these rounds belong to this guy and these rounds belong to this guy and we're arguing over this third round or something in the middle. It, It wasn't really like that. Like Even the rounds where like everybody, I think, and maybe this is the only one, I'm looking at the scorecards now, this might be the only... Uh, well, one of the two rounds that all the judges agreed on was like the f- giving the first round to Dan Hooker, fourth round to Paul Felder. And other than that, the scores are kind of all over the place because each round was so close. Yeah. And it's also at a certain point, you're asking what are we really looking for? Like what are we scoring for? Like more effective damage? Who's mm-hmm. bringing the fight to the other guy? We're really kind of splitting hairs when you get down to trying to choose a winner in some of these rounds. So... I can't complain about it either. I also, though, I it was interesting, the Paul Felder's reaction afterwards, because it seemed like the decision loss is one of the things that was affecting what he was saying. Like, you didn't get the sense that if he if that decision had gone his way, you didn't get the sense that he would have said the same thing afterwards.
1: No, right? I mean, I think that this was like an important fight for both these guys, and they were both they had both walked up to the line of contender status and they were kind of looking over the fence. And the winner is the guy who, at least in theory, gets to jump the fence and go frolic around with the best 155 pounders in the world. Paul Felder, he was probably the guy just given his, his higher profile in the sport, his longer history in the sport. He was the guy who we thought, you know, if he wins this, he might really get the opportunity to fight some of these high level uh, 155 pounders. This was also a You know, previous to this Dan Hooker fight, he hadn't lost a lightweight fight since uh, 2016 when he got stopped by Francisco Trinaldo. In between that, his only other loss was that split decision to Mike Perry, which was at 170 pounds. So had Felder won this, I feel like he would have been able to make a real good case that he should be considered among the top three or four best lightweights in the world and that he should be getting those high profile fights to lose it. I think it's a big setback for him, at least in his mind, and would have been a big setback at that moment in the cage when you just fought for 25 damn minutes, and you probably felt like you were gonna die for at least 15 of them. And yet, you know, you could see how this fight would be an emotional roller coaster for Paul Felder and how hard he tried, how he dug him he, he dug himself out of this early hole, comes back, makes it very close, then to be announced as the split decision loser. You can understand how in the moment you might be like, well, maybe I shouldn't do this anymore.
0: Yeah, maybe I've gone as far as I'm going to go with this. And especially, like I understand what he was saying when he's like the time away from his his family and his kids. and everything, Because he's
1: training a Rufus sport in uh, uh, Milwaukee. Right. And uh, lives in Boston, the Boston area, if I'm not mistaken. Philadelphia. 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 Uh, It's all the same to me. East of, the, east of the Mississippi. Well, it's just one big mega. You can
0: send those emails to Chad Dundas.
1: <laughs> so he's the point is he's leaving his home for yes. long stretches. He's and got a four-year-old daughter. You can understand how that would be dif- a difficult emotional situation for everybody.
0: Yeah, first you got to leave for the training camp, then you got to fly all the way to New Zealand for fight week and do all that stuff there, and then you come home with half your paycheck because you lost a split decision, like one point on one scorecard, cost you a bunch of money and career opportunities and now you're looking at it going is there time for me to climb that ladder again and get back here maybe not especially if you're paul felder and you have other things you can do yeah he's got a commentary gig he's very good at that he's a trained actor as we found out trained thespian a stage actor so yeah paul felder can do other things i can totally understand how especially in that moment you'd be like you know what i don't need this anymore i also though in cage retirements after right after a loss don't have the greatest track record of sticking in MMA fact. I mean, MMA retirements are always kind of difficult. Those I think are the lowest percentage. MMA. I mean, Misha Tate did it and she stuck with it. Other than that. I don't know. I can't think of a whole bunch offhand. Yeah. The thing. Okay. If you're Dan hooker though, now let's talk about Daniel Preston hooker. Cause you have, as you said, peering over the edge, into elite lightweight status. Here's what the UFC rankings look like right now. You got Khabib Nurmagomedov at the top. You got Tony Ferguson at number 1 going to get the next shot at Khabib here if everything holds together and he doesn't kill himself running on top of tires or something. Uh and then Dustin Poirier at number 2, Conor McGregor at number 3, Justin Gaethje at number 4, and then Dan Hooker newly moved up two spots to number 5 with Cerrone and then Felder behind him. Now if you're Dan Hooker, and you're looking to fight someone up the rankings from you. Yeah. He called out Justin Gaethje, which not easy to do when your face is swollen as all hell.
1: Yeah, it's like at the start of his post-fight interview, I legitimately thought he was speaking a different language. <laughs> <laughs> I did, like because I, I was trying to transcribe it. And I wasn't – I had in a different window. He's got the accent. I was not watching it and I was like, oh my god, I cannot understand a word that this guy's saying. He's
0: got the accent and then it sounds like he's got a tennis ball stuffed in his mouth after catching a a hard hook from uh, Paul Felder there. So he manages to get his point across that he's referring to Justin Gaethje. Kind of a feat to even get that out. But there's – Ariel Helwani is saying that there's preliminary talks of Justin Gaethje versus Conor McGregor, which I'm going to say right now. I'll believe it when I see it.
1: Yeah, I was surprised to see those reports. Because that doesn't seem like... Unless you can just straight up talk your way into a fight with Conor McGregor, unless he's that guy, I just I don't see why you would take that fight if you're Conor.
0: And I don't see why the UFC would want to make that fight, especially when they seem like they have had very clear intentions... To book Conor McGregor against yeah. Khabib, especially if Khabib wins this Tony Ferguson fight, do that rematch, make a whole bunch of money that way. Unless this is all we're we're planting the story as a way to put pressure on somebody uh, in fight negotiations, I I I'll believe it when I see it, and I won't believe it until then. But you're Dan Hooker, and you're looking at Justin Gaethje. Or he also had called out Dustin Poirier before. Yeah. Those are sensible fights. I can see why you would be like, okay, I need one of those to really get into this club. Yeah. I can also see how those guys would be looking at you right now and going, Nah, I don't see it, man. I feel like I I need a really, really big fight. Yeah. And you're a tough fight. Yes. But not a really big fight yet.
1: Dan Hooker is an, in an even more precarious place than Paul Felder would have been had he won this fight because he's a little bit lesser known than Paul Felder. At least Paul Felder is on UFC broadcasts a bunch, so we all kind of know who he is, the yeah. Irish dragon. Felder has ha- has a... Or I'm sorry, uh, Hooker has a pretty uh, similar record right now. Since moving up from featherweight in 2017, he's won all of his fights except for his meeting with Edson Barbosa in December of 2018 when he got uh, TKO'd in the third round. Other than that, he's won all of his lightweight fights. He's got three... Uh, either performance of the night or fight night bonuses. He's a tough guy. He's an exciting fighter. He always has somebody to call out, which is, the right thing to do. It's hard not to like any of the stuff that Dan Hooker is doing, right? He got this Paul Felder fight because he called him out after the Jim Miller win back in 2018, allegedly. Like, that's part of the pre-fight narrative. He's called out Dustin Poirier. He called out Justin Gaethje. But I think you're right on, man. Like, he is the guy right now in the lightweight division where I think it's an understatement to say stakes is high, right? Especially after watching this five-round fight with Paul Felder. Who in the fuck wants to fight Dan Hooker right now? Nobody. Because that's a tough fight, a grueling fight, a fight that might take you some time to get over, even if you win it. And what's the reward, really? If you're Dustin Poirier, and you just, you know, you were the interim champion, you just lost to Habib, you're still knocking on the door. It's not crazy for you to call out people like Conor McGregor and Justin Gaethje. Why on earth would you fight Dan Hooker?
0: Right, especially because... Like For somebody like Justin Gaethje, who is sitting there, he's been on his Twitter just constantly telling people uh, who ask him, what I'm doing next is I'm fighting the winner of the lightweight title fight in April. Nobody else is saying that Justin Gaethje is doing that. But Justin Gaethje is saying that as if it is a done deal and it is settled fact. Yeah. And that that is all that he is entertaining. And if you go to somebody like Justin Gaethje who is trying to angle for a title fight and you're like, how about Dan Hooker? And he's going to be like, oh, can you tell me that a win over Dan Hooker, that that will be the thing that seals it? Then my case for a title shot will be so rock solid that nobody could deny me. You can't guarantee him that. Yeah, like, you, I mean, you could say the words, but we all know they wouldn't mean anything. So I can't blame those guys for looking at him and being like, how is me fighting down the ranks against this guy going to improve my situation more than I already am? Like, yeah. And you can't give those – and that's one of the – Long-term like detriments as we talked about before to the way the UFC has done the matchmaking and the way the UFC doesn't really necessarily feel obliged to go by its own rankings at times. It's because it's, you put these guys in a situation where they have they feel climbed to the top of the pack and they want to know like, okay, what what equals what I want? What do I have to do in order to get what I want? And you you don't have the credibility to really be able to give out those guarantees.
1: Yeah, and for Dan Hooker, it's it's difficult to forecast what's going to be next for him because, like I said, uh, he's a big lightweight. He fights with uh, a lot of fire. He's a dangerous fight, and he's not a huge draw right now. So it's tough to know. You know, if you're looking, if you're Dan Hooker and you want to fight up the rankings, not a ton of uh, matchups out there right now for you. So we'll see what happens with that. Let's do. Are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then we will move on. To round number two, Ben, we discussed earlier in the program the stuff Deontay Wilder has been saying yep. post-fight after his loss to Tyson yep. Fury. This is, as far as I'm concerned, kind of following the archetypal post-fight news cycle because this happens every time there's a big fight, right? Deontay Wilder loses his fight, corner throws in the towel, all of the... the. uh the dweebs on the internet are going to come out of the woodwork and be like, this guy sucks. He was never good. I would fight Tyson Fury for $28 million, et cetera, et cetera. And so the clear-thinking uh, media of the world has to be like, no, you're being ridiculous. Deontay Wilder is a warrior. He's knocked out 40 dudes. Uh, he deserved this money. We have to like come out in force in favor of Deontay Wilder. And the next thing that happens is that Deontay Wilder says some crazy shit like, I walked to the ring in a 40-pound costume and that made me tired and hurt my performance against Tyson Fury. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? Like, everyone is trying to stick up for you right now. Just, even if you actually feel that way, just keep it to yourself for a little while. Yeah.
0: Yeah, keep it to yourself.
1: You know when you you talk about how the 40-pound costume made your legs tired and maybe you would have won otherwise? In the post-career look-back
0: documentary,
1: that's when you're like, oh, man, with all the batteries and stuff, that thing weighed like 40 pounds. I was tired when I got to the ring. You don't talk about it right now.
0: Also, the thing he said in his post-fight interview, one of the first things out of his mouth when they interviewed him in the ring was no excuses. Okay. he had yeah. no excuses. Yeah. And, and, well? Until, like, the next day.
1: Yeah. Then you got to think about it for
0: a little while. Just let everyone stick up for you, man. <laughs> well, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me is kind of related. Um, uh, because there I am in my hotel room in Portland, got my laptop open. Mm-hmm. I'm a, some peanut butter cups. I'm a couple peanut butter cups, and you know, made kind of a classic blunder when it came to the edibles. Oh, you made too many peanut butter cups. Well, you eat one, and some time goes by, and you're like, "Well, I don't really know how strong this is. I don't know, really, it's not really kicking in." Let me eat, let me eat another one, and then it all catches up to you, and it catches up to you right around the time. One motherfucker comes out there in a crown on a throne, being carried extremely slowly to the ring, while the next motherfucker comes out there in a forty-five-pound light-up, costumed honor black history month. Are you fucking kidding me? I can't handle that on all these edibles, man. Have a little respect. Just take it easy. I can't. I you're gonna make something bad happen. There was a moment there especially during Deontay Wilder's walkout after the Tyson Fury one, where I'm looking, I'm like, I can't stop staring at his weird, just like death mask thing that he's got going on there. And I'm going like, I wish, I wish there was a way for me to confirm that what I think is happening is actually happening right now because I'm alone in the hotel room. There's nobody I can ask. I just need everybody else to say that they're seeing this.
1: So you Are You Fucking Kidding Me is uh-huh. that the production values inherent in this heavyweight fight should have been more mindful yes. to the high guys out there who are watching the fight. To the guys who had eaten the edibles and were now high as a kite. Correct. Okay. Just wanted to make sure. fucking kidding me. You're fucking kidding me. Fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
0: Well, Chad, it looks like we're actually doing this. Henry Cejudo, Triple C, said right after the, the Jose Aldo's first fight at bantamweight, a decision loss to Marlon Moraes, that he felt like he won, was going to treat him like he won. He wanted Jose Aldo next. The entire MMA community, it seemed, spent the months since then being like, "Nah, man, we're not really that into it." We'd prefer that you fight one of the two very clearly worthy contenders that you have in your own division and stop focusing on this Jose Aldo thing. But instead, both the UFC and Henry Cejudo plowed right ahead. And now we're told the fight is booked for UFC 250 in May. We're just going ahead and doing whatever we decided we were going to do, regardless of how anybody feels about it.
1: Yeah, I think that probably the most important factor at play here is that UFC 250 goes down May the 9th in Sao Paulo, Brazil. So if you're going to have Henry Cejudo go down there and defend his bantamweight championship, Jose Aldo probably stacks up as the guy who might sell the most tickets. And also, I know that you've said this before, but as you, you talked about earlier in the show, I don't think that we can really blame Henry Cejudo for trying to book himself a fight that might make him a little bit more money than the other couple of fights available for the 135 pound championship, because that's sort of the, the, uh, the sales pitch that the UFC gives to its athletes that like, you know, throughout your career, maybe you're going to, maybe you're not making as much as you think you should. But when you become the champion, that's when the world falls at your feet. And especially after seeing Conor McGregor, uh, publicly do the same thing when he was UFC champion, it's, it's in vogue right now for people to be like, all right, I'm going to call the shots and I'm going to pick the big money matchups for myself as champion. The place where I think that this is somewhat indefensible is that aside from being in Sao Paulo, I'm not sure what Jose Aldo brings to the table. Because he's not going to chao son in this thing, right? No. And Jose Aldo is going to give you the opposite of that. He's not going to like sell the shit out of this
0: pay-per-view. So like, I don't know exactly what we're doing here, to be honest. Yeah. like That's what I wonder about it, too. Because I guess I would be... More understanding, at least, if you did pick somebody who was going to chelson in this thing and sell you a whole bunch of pay-per-views, because how many more pay-per-views do you think you sell as Henry Cejudo against Jose Aldo than you would against you know Peter Jan or yeah. Aljamain Sterling? Like fifty thousand more, hundred thousand
1: yeah. more. I think it's like it's a push, really, especially since we don't know what Peter Yawn or Aljamain Sterling can do in those positions. They haven't really gotten the chance.
0: Yeah, it just. I don't know that you can really convince me that, like, okay, as soon as you add Jose Aldo into this title fight mix, the pay-per-view becomes a blockbuster. Like, the evidence does not suggest that that is the case. And so for Henry Cejudo, then the question becomes, like, does he just think that he can sell a fight with Jose Aldo more than he can sell it against anybody else? Because we talked last week about how the Henry Cejudo gimmick is getting a lot less fun these days. Yeah,
1: he's made some missteps.
0: Yeah, like he has miscalculated what was good at all about the gimmick, and here he's gonna get what he wants, right? You, you wanted Jose Aldo, even though he's zero and one as a UFC bantamweight, he's got two losses in a row, but now he's coming in there, gonna get the title fight. Does Henry Cejudo just steamroll Jose Aldo here, and uh, does do we come out of it being like? Okay, Henry Cejudo added another MMA great to his hit list. Like, do you because that seems to be what he's kind of hoping for?
1: Yeah, I mean, Jose Aldo is not washed up by any stretch of the imagination. No, he looked good in that Marlon Moraes fight. Yeah, I mean, I don't feel like we can just pretend that he won. I don't feel like that (laughs) opens a door to a place where we don't necessarily want to go in this sport, even though the UFC may be so far down the matchmaking path at this point that you know, uh, clearly we're not strictly going through merit. Or, like, win-loss records or anything like that. But, like, to just flat pretend that we think Jose Aldo beat Marlon Moraes at UFC 245 is a Pandora's box type situation. Like, you open the door to a lot of stuff at that point, if that's what you're going to do. Jose Aldo, as I said, is still clearly a capable fighter. But I would point out that since losing to Conor McGregor in December of 2015, his wins are... Frankie Edgar, a unanimous decision at UFC 200, Jeremy Stevens, a TKO in July 2018, and Henato Moikano, another TKO in February 2019. He's lost to twice to Max Holloway, Alexander Volkanovski, and then of course the close one against Marlon Moraes. And the guy's only 33 years old, as you and I remarked to the live stream audience here in between rounds. Still seems impossible. But at the same time... He's not washed up. He's still extremely capable. But, like, we are also clearly dealing with a slightly different Jose Aldo than the guy who was the WEC featherweight champion and the guy who knocked out uh, guys with double flying knees and the guys who made, you know, uh, Uriah Faber and Mike Brown look somewhat uh, pedestrian. Like, it's not the same guy. So, like, you're not going to get probably like a – you're not going to get like a new – dangerous version of Jose Aldo. You're not going to get a Jose Aldo who's going to sell the shit out of
0: this fight. I don't really understand what we're doing. The thing that feels annoying about it to me is how it just comes off like an idea where they said beforehand, here's what we're going to do. Jose Aldo goes out there and beats Marlon Moraes. Henry Cejudo going to call out Jose Aldo and we're going to make that fight at, for the bantamweight title. And then the result doesn't go the way you think it's going to go, but you already got the idea in your head. you already committed. You're like, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do no matter what their actual results say, which then makes you feel like, why are we even doing, why did we do this fight? Why didn't we just say, like, if you had it just preordained in your mind, this was what was, was going to happen, then what was the fight for? Yeah. I mean, they and even f- when other people are telling you, like, hey, we're not that into this idea, man. We'd prefer you do something else. And you're just like, nope, this, this is what I'm doing. That's the annoying part.
1: Yeah. And it, like we've seen situations in the past where people tried to do this and the UFC basically said no, right? Like we've – clearly this isn't – it wouldn't be a uh, an unprecedented thing for the UFC to flex its muscle and just be like, no, here's what you're doing. Yeah. So I don't – I just – unless well, like we really are just trying to get Henry Cejudo a win or, or I don't even know. Like I don't – I'm kind of baffled
0: honestly. And yet I feel like – after watching the sport for any length of time, you could already go ahead and script the Dana White response to people asking about this one. And it'll go like this. Listen, Henry Cejudo said, I want Jose Aldo. Jose Aldo is a killer. Came down from a higher weight class. Henry Cejudo said, I don't care. I want Jose Aldo in Brazil. And Hey, how can you not love it? How can you not give the guy what he wants there? Yeah. There you go. That's the, that's the pitch.
1: You know, what else is interesting about this above and beyond everything else is that If I'm not mistaken, this pay-per-view, UFC 250, is going to go head-to-head with this Bellator event where you're going to get Douglas Lima versus Gegard Mousasi for the vacant middleweight title. you got the welterweight champ moving up to fight the former middleweight champ for the 185-pound title that Rafael Lovato Jr. just had to give up due to his uh, brain malady. Dude, have you seen your brain? Dude, have you seen your brain? And then you also got uh, Ryan Bader. Ryan Bader's, Brian Bader's, I believe he's fighting Vadim Nemkov. Is that right? I'm not. I think, I think that's, that's idea, right. Yeah. I'm not totally sure on Bader's opponent. So, like, if you're sitting at home and you're an MMA fan, I, and you are, I'm, am I going to drop sixty, seventy bucks to watch UFC 250, or if I got the Zone, if I got Paramount, am I just going to watch this Bellator thing? This is one of those cases where I feel like it's pretty easy to justify making the Bellator move.
0: Yeah, but if you sit this one out, you'll also miss the much-anticipated trilogy bout between Shogun Hua and Roger Nog. I know you're, I know that when last they fought, you were like, well, we got to see this one one more time.
1: Even though you are clearly making a joke, that's not funny, bro. <laughs> that's
0: uh, not funny. Betch Kohea versus Panikianzad? Nope. Not funny, bro. No. Black Boy Evenoff, Augusto Sakai. Nope, not. Fabrizio Verdoom versus Alexio Linick. Okay, that's actually one that I could get by. Battle of Submission Weirdsmobiles. That's right, yeah. Anywho, that's going to do
1: it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. So, Ben, in the wake of Henry Cejudo giving up the men's flyweight title in order to move on to exciting new business like fighting Jose Aldo at UFC 250, we are going to get a men's flyweight fight between Joseph Benavidez and Davison Figueredo for the vacant men's 125-pound title. That goes down this Saturday night at UFC Fight Night 169 a.k.a. UFC on ESPN Plus 27, a.k.a. Benavides versus Figueredo, live from the Chartway Arena in Norfolk, Virginia, the granddaddy of them all. Let's talk a little bit about this flyweight title fight, man, because clearly Joe B., a fan favorite, a favorite of the CME podcast, a guy who has been around for a long, long time, been in the UFC more or less uh, un- uninterrupted since 2011 and in the WEC before that finally going to get another opportunity to fight for the flyweight title and I think a lot of us are are maybe jumping the gun but looking at this fight like a like a coronation for Joseph Benavidez despite the fact that uh, Davison Figueroa, also a tough guy he's got two in a row here uh, coming off a submission win over Tim Elliott in October of last year, he did have the loss to Juicy Formiga in March of 2019, but he still tumbles his way into this 125 pound title fight. How are you looking at this? Is this a uh, is this Joe B finally getting the strap, or does he have more to worry about from Davis and Figueroa than maybe we are anticipating?
0: Well, do you remember when the UFC first announced that it was going to have the flyweight title and we we're going to do like a mini tournament for it? Yeah, and back then, I think a lot of us thought, okay. This is Joe B's title to just go and get. Yes. And little did we know that Demetrius Johnson was going to wind up being a serious thing down there in that division. And so for a long time, it felt like Joseph Benavidez was one of the best fighters to not have a UFC title, not have ever won a UFC title. This one, I mean, when you look at, like when, for that last fight where Joseph Benavidez went out there in, uh, that one in Minneapolis where he fought Juicy Formiga and afterwards... Everybody was going, okay, well, if Henry Cejudo vacates, would you do a vacant title fight? But then going, but that would have been the vacant title fight. Right. Like Benavidez (laughs) versus Formiga, that would have been the fight that you did. And you already did it, and we already see who wins, so you're not going to run it back. And so then it did – like it took on the air of them just like finding somebody. Like let's just find a warm body to throw in there with Joe B, and uh, he could beat somebody, and then we could put the belt on him, and then we'll move on from there. Yeah. And he does have – kind of like as a consequence of being – in the UFC and in this division for so long, it feels like he's fought absolutely everybody yeah. that there is to fight.
1: There. And Joe B's career losses, let's not forget. He had the split decision loss to Sergio Pettis at UFC 225. But prior to that, Demetrius Johnson, Dominic Cruz, and that's it because he yeah. lost twice to those guys. Oh, BT Dubs split decision win over a fellow you might have heard of, Henry Cejudo. That's right. December 2016. Clearly a different version of Henry Cejudo than the one we have on our hands at this point. But like, aside from losing to two of the greats at the bantamweight flyweight divisions, jo- Joseph Benavidez has been extremely good
0: yeah, in these weight classes. Yeah, extremely consistent. And so, yeah, it does feel like it's just him going to go out there and get the belt. But then, you know, that the MMA gods seem to love a setup like
1: that. Yeah, no, the best laid plans in this sport often... Often go awry, as we have seen almost time and time again. So you certainly don't want to count out uh, Davison Figueredo, who comes in to this fight, as I said, on two straight wins and is that Juicy Formiga loss, his only career loss. So another guy who has been very good. Not that we want to overlook him, but let's overlook him for a second. What kind of champion do you think Joseph Benavidez is? Like clearly before Cejudo came along and became the double C and the triple C and now wants to be the quadruple C, wants to do all this stuff, fight Jose Aldo, fight uh, uh, Alexander Volkanovsky. We thought we were going to – we might just shelve the flyweight division. We thought Demetrius Johnson may have proved at least to the UFC's mind that the 125-pound men were not big – uh, draws, um, even among hardcore fans, but the, the, uh, the division appears to have been saved. Let's say we put this strap on Joseph Benavidez, who is a, a lovely gentleman with a, uh, you know, an engaging personality, a good sense of humor, diverse interests. What kind of champion is he? What, what can he do for this weight class that has struggled so mightily?
0: You know, I think if given the right opportunity, he could do a lot because I think he's an exciting fighter to watch. And like you said, I think if people got to know him a little better, I think a lot of people would like him and that he is a little more interesting and has a little more like diverse interests. uh, And it's just like a smart, engaging guy to talk to and to hear from that I think that if the UFC really cared to, enough to really try and promote this thing and promote the division and promote its champion, I think you could do a lot of good work with Joseph Benavidez. The only question for me is going to be, Who's he going to fight? Yeah. Like, where are you going to get the competition from? Yeah. And is it just going to be a matter of time until we're trying to promote him moving up and wait for a champion versus champion super fight rematch with Triple C? Which, hey, man, you could do worse. You could do a lot worse. Especially
1: since right now, who you're going to fight seems to be the defining question of so many champions in the UFC. We're essentially asking the same thing about Valentina Shevchenko. In a way, you know, despite the fact that there is Peter Yon and, and Aljamain Sterling, uh, Henry Cejudo kind of making a who you going to fight situation for himself. It just seems like they're, you know, at, men, at women's featherweight, we don't even have rankings. We, you know, we're we just kind of winging it. Uh, obviously, Amanda Nunez has been very good, defeat, defeated a lot of the competition there. So if the biggest question you can ask about Joseph Benavidez is who he's going to fight, that certainly doesn't, you know, make him unique in the in the landscape of
0: UFC champions right now. What else you see here on this uh Norfolk fight card to get your interest I mean this is a tough lineup right it's not it's not the most star-studded thing I've ever looked at
1: you got this uh, this light heavyweight fight between Ion Kutalaba and uh, magomed Ankelev uh, which is probably gonna be a a banger right these are two guys that like to strike. They're going to get after it. That's probably going to be fun. Of course, Megan Anderson is on this card. She's uh, someone that we know, like one of the only people we know in the women's 145-pound division. And a person who, when she came over from Invicta, we thought might have the chance to do some stuff in that division. Of course, you got Felicia Spencer on here as well. I mean, I'll be honest with you, man. It's a tough card. It's a tough card down there in, in Norfolk, especially since, as you pointed out, you still got a TBD on the official Wikipedia card. So maybe things are still coming together there. But again, this is like we talked about with the Felder hooker card. This is one where it's like, you have a have a bunch of fights, none of which are necessarily that relevant. And then of course you got the flyweight title fight at the top of it, which kind of brings an aura of, uh, you know, uh, relevance to the rest of it. So you, I guess you're, you're leaning a lot on Joseph Benavidez, Davis and Figueroa to go out there and try to get some stuff done.
0: It also so seems like if the old knock on the flyweight division was that fans don't care about it, not enough people tune in to watch those fights, but then when you have a fight for the vacant title and you're finally trying to breathe some life back into the division, you put it atop a otherwise entirely missable fight card like this, you're not exactly setting them up for success. Yeah,
1: no, I agree. I agree. All right, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your Just Saying Stuff?
0: Did you hear that uh, over there in Dublin, in the Bellator card over there this past weekend, uh-huh. uh, Kiefer Crosby, an SBG guy, one of Conor McGregor's teammates, I believe, he got a split decision win, but he was fined $500, according to Bloody Elbow, or, uh, and I think they were referring to the MMA Fighting Report, fined $500 for flipping the bird to his opponent during okay. the fight. Now, here's a quote from uh Mike Mazzuli who is the Mohegan Tribe Department of Athletic Regulation Executive Director, but who also does handles Bellator's regulation for overseas events. Quote, this is a minimal fine compared to one that would be given for an NFL game on Sunday. We're a mainstream sport, and we have to treat it like one. I guess I'm just saying, when it comes to this comment about how we have to fine them because it's a mainstream sport... uh, this is one of those comments for me that feels like if you have to say it, maybe it's not true. <laughs> okay. Also, are we really are we really gonna start doing this? We're gonna start being outraged at somebody making a an obscene gesture during a fight while we're punching each other in the face and shit. Yeah. You can't even flip somebody off during a cage fight anymore. Yeah. What is America coming to? Well
1: That's a thousand bucks for Nate Diaz every time, right? That's there, right. Because he's gonna give you the double burn. Yeah, he's
0: not gonna give you just one. Just Just saying. saying. Just saying.
1: Ben, did you see that uh, Curtis Blades and Anthony Johnson had themselves a sumo wrestling match over the weekend down there at uh, Miami?
0: Thanks to Twitter, there's a lot of people who are going to make sure it's impossible for me not to see that. I guess I'm just saying, what? Wait, what are we doing here? (laughs) I mean, I watched the videos. Yeah, naturally. You're going to watch them.
1: Yeah. And first of all, like, tough to draw Curtis Blades in a sumo match, man. That's a guy with a lot of grappling credentials there. So, uh... I mean, I guess that's something that we're gonna do, but uh, I don't. I'm not. I don't know what's happening
0: anymore. I feel more and more like just a confused old man. I'm now. I'm getting an idea for Patreon only streaming content. You and me, sumo match. Okay, right here in this office.
1: Can we do those big blow up sumo suits that were so popular at parties? Like. Ten years ago? Fifteen
0: years ago? <laughs> Maybe we could find some used. at a really good deal <laughs> right now. A, I
1: bet we could get a good deal on some inflatable
0: sumo suits. Feels like uh, It feels like kind of a cop-out, though, to use the suits.
1: Well, I mean, I don't know that either of us is going to cut an Anthony Johnson, Curtis Blades-type figure in our sumo thing. Well, you ever give us time to train. Maybe we get in shape for it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we really get into a training camp? I don't know. I think the suits might be our best friends. <laughs> Think maybe you're underestimating, maybe we'll what have the to put up a could pole. do for this, okay, anyway, that's gonna do it for this week's co main event podcast again, it's Tuesday today, so we're a day late tomorrow. We will be back on Wednesday with a bunch of fantastic patreon offerings. We'll have the live chat going off at eleven thirty and then uh we'll be dropping the parasite movie Club episode. For $10 patrons, of course, the live chat open to all levels of patrons, $1, $5, $10. If you are not yet a member of the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon, go over to patreon.com and sign up. That's the best stuff at this point, the Patreon stuff. It's like patrons are just throwing money in the air. That's how excited they are. It's a big
0: party we got our shirts off, dancing on the table.
1: It might be a sumo match. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows what might happen. Then, of course, Friday, we will be back for the uh, Power Hour. Next week, I'm on the road after Wednesday. So the Comain Event podcast will go off as scheduled. The uh, live chat will go off as scheduled. We're going to have to talk about the Power Hour. But maybe we can get that done. I will be in uh, Columbus, Ohio for the Arnold's. Going to the Arnold sports thing. I'm sure you're
0: you're going to fit right in there.
1: You need to borrow my Affliction shirt? You know what I could probably get? Some sumo suits. I bet you could. there's one place where you can pick up some sumo suits, it's probably going to be the Arnold. Also some
0: Axe Body Spray.
1: That's right. So excited about that. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out.
0: See, I think if you and I just uh, approach the sumo thing as in, we will find out who the best, the CME's best sumo wrestler is. And like just pure mono e mono, then I I think it's harder to justify the suits.
1: Well, one thing I can't say uh, without without hesitation is that I'm going to have the more realistic sumo body.
0: Well, then that feels like you're giving away an advantage if you put that you hide that in the suit. (laughs) You give me a suit to work with. Maybe maybe you're uh, just causing trouble for yourself. I said it.
1: Okay, yeah. No, now I'm now I'm rethinking my strategy here. Now I'm I'm at sea. I'm gonna have to get together with my people and figure out a strategy. I think strategy
0: number one is to make sure that it never happens. Well, I've already begun to mentally tailor my training regimen for like a sumo contest. contest. I'm gonna go eat some wings, Richard.